Welcome back to Patriots of the Core Podcast. I'm Thad Forrester. In November of 2021, I was invited to a CCF fundraiser in Odessa, Texas. I had no idea what to expect, but I knew Ronnie Rains from episode 15 was the driving force behind it. Therefore, I knew there would be there would be some support. What I witnessed that night, not only from heroic stories from the war on terror and Afghanistan withdrawal, but also from locals who opened their wallets and generously donated to the CCF and helped our combat controllers and their families. Rip from Yellowstone was there. He definitely contributed to getting people to donate money by what he brought to the auction. My guests today were a big part of that. You'll learn much about these silent professionals, combat controllers. If you're a young man considering some form of special operations, this is a great episode for you. And you'll learn why CCTs are the deadliest force in the military. I know that's a bold statement, but they will explain why. If you're looking for a worthy organization to donate to, the Combat Control Association is a great option, and they'll explain it all here. And we get some details about withdrawing from Afghanistan back in August of 2021. What were the Combat Controller's role in that? Thank you for tuning in, and here is Mike and Kyle. Mike and Kyle, thank you for joining me tonight. Y'all are kind of long-timers in the Combat Control community. How did you learn about CCT, and why did you choose it? Well, I was a, uh, I came in as a law enforcement security uh, forces individual first because I was, uh, wanted to be a cop when I got back out of the military. I just came in to get the training as a cop. So I was going to get out and become a state trooper. But once I got in, I seen those guys down at Lackland running around and I thought, who are they? And so as soon as my three years were up, I checked into how to cross train and uh, combat control was the, the right place to go. So I immediately signed up and left for Lackland and that was pretty much it. Yeah, so for me, it was a, a little bit of a different story. Uh, you know, back then, we didn't have the internet. <laughs> back then, we didn't have the internet. Makes it sound old. And recruiters, really, when, when I joined, were trying to push security forces and law enforcement. So that's what I came in to be, is law enforcement. The day I left for basic training, the recruiter threw an airman's magazine at me, and it had a, a PJ training on the front of it. It was called uh, Superman University. I read it. I was like, yeah, it's a bunch of meatheads doing a bunch of push-ups. I didn't really want to hang out with those types of guys. But while I was in basic training, there were dudes literally crying themselves to sleep at night. And I went, yeah, I, I can't be around these people. I need to be around people doing something better. And uh, on day 22, they had a briefing on combat control. I went to the briefing and went, okay, that's where I need to be. I went and tried out. I quickly realized those are the dudes I wanted to be around. They all walked around with confidence. Um in their chest out and I went, okay, I need to be here. I couldn't have told you what a combat controller did at that point. All I knew is these were the types of dudes I wanted to be around. So I went into the pipeline and made it through INDOC, but uh, ultimately learned what combat controllers did about three quarters of the way through the pipeline. Uh, but I found out about it through a very haphazard way, which is not uncommon for the guys of our era. There were no wars. There were no big medals. There were no, uh, major news articles about combat control at the time. So we really had a haphazard recruiting uh, style back in those days. Um, this was probably 83, 80s. And, and I didn't even know what combat controllers were in the military. I just looked up in the book to cross train because I did everything as a cop. And I was like, I got to do something else because I was bored. And these guys had the most schools. So I became combat controller because they had the most schools. And uh, like, like Mike, I didn't even know what they were until you know, I got to combat control school. Yeah, for me, it was 1987. I joined the Air Force in August of 87. And from the time I went to basic training, mid-August to the time I graduated is when I made that decision. Best decision of my life. But I really tripped into it. 
I mean, how many people were in at that time? Was it even 300? Um, yeah, I think my entire career, all the way up until late in, the, in my career, we were only about 70% manned and we had about, you know, 350 to 400 billets. So I think, you know, around then there were probably 300, 325 combat controllers on active duty at the time. So fast forward a little bit, pre 9-11, what were some of the operations or some of the deployments that you both went on? Well, I, I showed up in 89 to Pope Air Force Base and uh, was went to IFAM just in time for, so I could manage, manage the uh, radio as everybody else flew into Panama to invade Panama. I stayed back at Pope and, you know, was the new guy. So I missed out on Panama. And uh, that was really the first introduction to what the combat controllers were getting into. And so I sat down, down at Pope for two years and figured out if I wanted to go do something high speed, I'd go to the 24th. So I applied for the 24th and I immediately went to the 24th. Um, that's when we've seen all of the war type conflicts where guys are going out and doing stuff and, you know, small teams of individuals press forward a little while. And the next thing was Somalia. Well, missed out on Somalia also. So I was really stuck. And uh, the Pope team, the only thing I did in a Pope team, the only thing, you know, we went to Desert Storm and Desert Shield, did that stuff. But uh, like I said, I missed out on the Panama and I missed out on Somalia. So fortunately I jumped in or I got to do some stuff in uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield. Did you do anything after that before in between it and 9-11? I don't think I had any uh, operational taskings before that or after that, you know, minor things that uh, just alerts, pulling alerts and training was really the big thing back then is uh, there were no major conflicts to go do. And, you know, the smaller conflicts were all the, you know, other quieter guys that just went out and did some stuff and came back. Yes. I I had a similar experience, uh, but I'll amplify on some of the things. So I was an airman when uh, Panama happened. I didn't get, get on the airplane to go. Uh, and I was in Germany when uh, Somalia happened. But, and I went to Desert Storm. Uh, I was over there with, with Kyle, as a matter of fact. One of the unique things about combat control, though, is we, we don't have just a wartime mission. We also have a humanitarian mission. So while I was stationed in Germany in 91 through 94, I went down to Africa. I was there for two months straight. One month I was in Angola helping with the first democratic elections in 30 years. And we were working airfields and going out and moving people from one war infection to another so they'd go home and vote. And then I went straight into Somalia, uh, which was before Black Hawk Down. So I inserted with the Pakistanis. Um, and we were there on a humanitarian mission to uh, distribute f- food and, and other resources into Somalia. Um, the Pakistanis that I went in with were the ones who got ambushed later, who then it resulted in task force ranger going in and doing the things they did about a year later, year after I was there. You know, while there wasn't a whole lot of war fighting going on, there were a lot of combat control missions going on <laughs> at the time. You can look at the, the volcano eruption of Mount Pinatubo in, in the Philippines where combat controllers helped evacuate the island and bring resources to bear to save lives. You can look at the hurricanes down in the Virgin Islands where the Pope team sent down guys to run airfields. Uh, when, when the pilots were completely devastated. Um, in 1994, Kyle, you and I both did the workup for Haiti, right? So we were actually on the back of an airplane with propellers spinning, ready to jump into Haiti and, and work uh, all different kinds of missions there to remove uh, President Aristide at the time. 
uh, we were actually on the runway with engines running uh, when former President Jimmy Carter had intervened and they called everything off. But uh, there was a lot of things that we were doing at the time. They just weren't as big as what happened post 9-11. Yeah, very interesting. Now for after post 9-11, Mike, what about you? How did it affect your job and, and how soon did you go to Afghanistan or where did you go? Uh, so I, I didn't quite catch your first question. How, how did it affect what? Well, just your role. I mean, what, what role okay. did you play? Okay, so, yeah, so 9-11 happened. I, I was actually an instructor at the schoolhouse on 9-11. It was supposed to be my last day there, and I was going to go join Kyle to the 24th to return to that unit. Um, clearly 9-11 happened, and I packed my stuff up from the schoolhouse. and went straight up to the unit next day, and Kyle actually did a lot to get me prepared. <clears throat> and for the next 30 days, we spent every day and every night training and, and looking at intel to decide what we were going to do in Afghanistan. Uh, we both deployed together in late September of 2001 uh, to a classified forward operating base. And we launched missions out of there. And we both did the same exact mission on October 19, 2001, where we parachuted into Afghanistan with our Ranger teammates. Uh, and we seized an airfield. The airfield was, the purpose was a couple things, right? First, we wanted to show boots on the ground. America was, America was responding to what had happened just a month prior. But as important, there were other missions going on deeper inside of Afghanistan where there were helicopter flights with a bunch of our, our teammates on them to go take the fight to the enemy on that first evening. And what we learned is the, the weather in the mountain pass from southern Afghanistan, northern Pakistan, it was so hot that they had to reduce the, the weight in the aircraft to get over and they could get to the target, but they couldn't get back to the ship that they launched from. So they used the site that we parachuted into to set up a, a forward operating base where we could refuel them. So uh, those helicopters went forward. The men on those airplanes went and did their mission. They came back. They stopped where we were. They refueled. We got them out of there. We wrapped our stuff up and we went home. Uh, so that was October 19, 2001, that uh, Kyle and I both did that mission. And there's, there's a lot of similarities between certain missions that combat controllers do. So this one here is actually similar to the same mission they did for Desert One. And, and we looked at Desert One and, and learned from what they did there, the good and the bad, to find out how to make ourselves successful. So, you know, Desert One was a staging point. We were the same thing at staging point. It was just a few years later, but it's almost the identical mission. Because I remember, I think, uh, Mike, you may have talked to Coach or you may have talked to a few people around that mission and gotten some good intel on, hey, make sure you're looking at this, make sure you're watching this. And so historically, we tend to do things over and over because we're good at it and we tend to go back to that. So that's one of the, uh, you know, things I remember about this is it was, it was almost the exact same mission. So what's notable here, Thad, is on, on the missions that happened as a result of what happened on 9-11, the very first mission that happened, the very first one was a, Air Force mission, combat controllers, combat weathermen, and pararescue men on the mountain pass going into Afghanistan. They spent 10 days out there gathering information, mostly weather, to let us know what was going on. That information changed the aircraft loads of planes flying into the country. The parachute job that, that we just talked about, there were 19 of us on there between combat controllers and pararescue men. Kyle and I just happened to be two of them. The missions that went further in country where the helicopters went in uh, with people and they went in to kill 
bad guys that specifically the lead planners for uh, what happened on 9-11, that was full of special forces guys who also happened to have three combat controllers with them. And the combat controllers did most of the work on the ground that day. Special forces guy did what they're supposed to do. They went down, they secured the ground, and the combat controllers were doing nothing but calling close air support uh, and really taking the fight to the enemy in a, in a devastating way. And not only did we have combat controllers on the missions, but we were able to tie into each other. So while Kyle and I were on the airfield and the helicopters were coming back to refuel from, from their target, the combat controllers that were on there were calling us on our team radios. So it wasn't just the helicopter talking to the air traffic controller on the ground, which was a combat controller. We actually had guys calling us, talking to us, saying, hey, we're inbound, this is what's going on. Here's things we need. So as, as a ground force, we were able to receive them and get them moving as soon as possible. So it's really neat uh, to see how combat controllers on a bunch of different missions talking to each other while the missions are going on is really what kept things going. So before you deployed and you were in North Carolina preparing, gathering intel, how much of the how much were y'all being told, hey, this is what we're going to do? And how much of it were y'all saying, hey, this is what we need to do? Were you, were you two adding to it? And how much were you being told what you had to do? I'll let you go first. Well, <clears throat> at the time, I believe I may have been on green team, team leader for green team. So I was still trying to train up guys, get them ready to get them out the door before, you know, we started kicking overseas. So as far as the planning on what was going on and what we're going to go over there and do, that was something that I wasn't actually uh, tasked into because I wasn't an active, we'll say a team team leader. I was a green team team leader, which is a training team, which is a, you know, it's just slightly different than the team leader. And so what, what was going on, and I was deeply involved in this, really because I was just getting back in the swing of things. The day prior, I was at, at the, as an instructor at the combat control school. Um, so I was involving myself in every single thing, merely to make sure I was prepared. Um, and fundamentally what happened is leadership said, hey, we're going to go to Afghanistan. Clearly, right? We all went, okay, where's Afghanistan? Find that on the map. They said, we're going to go do some missions. And here's a mission we may do. So any mission set that they talked that they might do that involved combat controllers, we then started digging in and going, okay, what do they need from us here? Like Kyle said, this is very representative of what happened in Desert One 30 years prior or 20 years prior at the time. So we were trying to learn lessons from that. We went out every single night and we did actions on the objective. We did it at night without lights to make sure that we uh, had our stuff together. We were out buying new equipment because there was uh, nobody thought we were going to jump in and do a survey in the middle of the night and, and have to land planes that same night. That had never been done. Um, even in Desert One, Coach Carney went in months prior, surveyed it, came out, and then they went uh, a month, couple months later to go actually do the mission. We were talking about doing something that had never been done, which is parachute in, survey a piece of land, and in that same evening, get that survey approved and land airplanes. Just hadn't been done. So there's a lot of us figuring out what we needed to do at the very tactical level. Quite frankly, we were on the back of that airplane getting ready to jump into Afghanistan. I didn't believe we were going to go. I'd already been in the back of an airplane ready to jump into Haiti uh, in 1994. So we were used to gearing up for things and not actually doing them. So when we got on these airplanes, while we were excited and prepared to go do it, um, and we spent 30 days practicing every night to make sure that we were capable of doing it, there was still a lot of skepticism uh, at, at our level. But we were driving the tactics that we were going to use. The leadership was driving the location and the target, if you will. Okay. Would you recommend, I mean, did that method work? I think so. I mean, we were very successful. 
you, you've got to have people focus at all different levels, right? At the national level, you got people focused on how governments work together and who's going to let us uh, stage out of their country. At the operational level, you have leaders going, okay, here's the things we're going to do. Here's the targets we're going to hit. At the technical level, you've got guys like me and Kyle at the time going, okay, if that's what we're going to do, here's how we're going to go do it. And that is fundamentally how the military works. So it seemed to work well. I'm not sure I would have done anything different there. Okay. And like Mike said, we were taking new new procedures that we hadn't done before. I mean, we could survey it on LZ, but normally we take a team out there and we survey an LZ. This is, we're going to survey an LZ and within, and I, you know, I don't even know the timeline was, but within a short time later, we're going to start landing airplanes. And by surveying the DZ or the LZ, we weren't just surveying that. I mean, we are doing, you know, uh, California bearing ratio test and we're doing all kinds of penetrator checks and it was a, a very extensive survey so it was something that we hadn't normally done that we trained up in those 30 days prior to go get done and then we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed so we could do it and honestly it went on it was almost like an exercise to me uh, I was amazed we did like exactly what we we're supposed to do a little more pucker factor because you knew it was real but because we'd done it so many times, so many times in rehearsal, it was almost just like another rehearsal for us. I had Bart Decker on the show a few years ago, and uh, you know, he's we talked about the horse soldiers, one of the guys in there on, on horseback. Were y'all part of that group, or how did your time when you when you went in in late September of two thousand one? How did it coincide? Maybe different area, or did y'all overlap with in in time? How did that work? Yeah, so that the the unit. Bart was with deployed up into the north. So they were up in uh, K2. I, I forget the name of the country. I think Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan is the name of the country, I believe. They, they went in and they staged up there and they flew in over the Hindu Kish Mountains and linked up with Special Forces soldiers and Northern Alliance up in the northern part of the country. Yeah. We were coming in from the south. So a lot of those things launched the same evening on, on October 19th some of the things that happened up in the North and then us going in from the South. So we did not do the horse soldier stuff. We did a lot of stuff in the Southern region and in the green zone near the river, which is where they you know, grow a lot of their poppy and things like that. Okay. Were y'all communicating? Y'all's teams communicating at all? Did you know what they were doing and they know what you no, were they, doing? They were too far apart. Um, some of us sat into sat in uh, commander's briefings. So the general would get a briefing every night. We would sit in and we'd hear about some of the things that were going on up, up North. Uh, but we weren't talking to them specifically. They were up, uh, I'd say at the time they were fighting their own war, we were fighting our own war. Uh, strategically, it was a little bit of a pinch, but more forcing the Taliban to divide and conquer, right? They they couldn't fight two fronts, so we were drawing their attention away. But it, there, there wasn't a whole lot of integration there. Okay. And there didn't need to be. It was, the, the distance was pretty great. There was a yeah. whole lot of support we were going to provide them. Kyle, what were some of the things that y'all learned once you got there? You've been training so much, and I know I think you had some surveys and you, you realized about the loads with the, with the helicopters, but what are some things you learned really once you got boots on the ground that you had no idea to expect? You know, I, I truly think that our rehearsal and our training prior to this, I didn't have a lot of surprises. When I got on the ground, even on the airfields, I'd done airfields for two years straight, every airfield there was uh, in training. So I, I was pretty well versed on airfields and knew what to do. And, you know, we had one incident where, you know, we had some people jump in, get hurt pretty bad. They had to set up an emergency airfield. 
Uh, so, you know, they sent me over to a road, me and another guy, and we set up an emergency, you know, box in one, landed some special airplanes, came in and got those guys medevaced out. But that's all standard. I mean, that's something we train for every day is, hey, something just happened. Go make this work. Get an airplane in here to get these guys out of here. So I didn't have any surprises to say because, I mean, really the unit trained us. I mean, I couldn't have been better trained. They couldn't. I wish I someone would have gave me a surprise because I would have been excited to try and figure out how to fix the problem. But I honestly had no surprises whatsoever. Wow. Mike? Yeah, I'd echo Kyle's sentiments. Uh, the, the combat control pipeline is two years long, and they teach you a lot of stuff. Like I said, I had just left the combat control school. What was amazing to me, there was about a 12-day period from October 19th uh, to the – actually, it was maybe a 30-day period where we were doing missions almost every night. And the missions that we were doing were almost identical to missions that the, we had the combat control students doing during our field training exercise at the end of the class. Um, it was eerily similar for me. Uh, having just left the school, I went, wow, we're, we're doing a good job of training our guys because these are all very, very similar missions. There are some advanced skills like surveying a piece of ground in, in one period of darkness, getting the survey approved in four hours, landing airplanes. That's not something an apprentice combat controller can do. But the mission profiles of jumping in, taking a piece of land, controlling all the air assets, maneuvering people through battle space, um, and then working with our, our partners, right? The Rangers and Special Forces and SEALs. You know, we had guys on every single mission. Some of the biggest missions that happened in those early days, combat controllers were critical parts of. The first tandem jump by Mike Bain in combat, getting Karzai, extracting him so that we could bring him out and get him prepared to take over that country at, from a, a legal standpoint. You know, it was Rick Hopoff and one of our pararescuemen. Uh, we had guys on all kinds of missions and there were combat controllers and pararescuemen on every single one of those missions playing critical roles. So that to me was the most outstanding thing. Uh, because when you're preparing for war and you're saying you might go do something, the units uh, that we work with, the SEALs, Special Forces, Rangers, you know, whoever it may be, they tend to get in this mode of picking their A team, right? Hey, I'm going to go take guys from this squad and that squad, and that's, I'm going to take the best team in to go do this. Well, when you're taking over a country, you're not spending a whole lot of time doing that. You're going, okay, let's make sure we've got the right amount of people in the right spaces. So we got out of this thing where we went, do I want a combat controller? Do I not want a combat controller? Do I want a PJ? Do I not want a PJ? We went in and went, okay, we're going to go do our jobs. And because we were doing it so well, it turned into, hey, I need more combat controllers. I need more PJs. How can I get more? And there weren't missions going on. Not one mission went out on any given night that we didn't have people going, hey, can we have one more guy? That was impactful for me because for years, we were fighting to get on the airplane. And now we didn't have enough people to put on airplanes. And it was, it was a great feeling. Mike, were you attached? Who all were you attached to? to? Was it only, was it special forces? Did you attach to any other teams? And, uh, and also how long were your deployments usually? And did that change throughout the, the global war on terrorism? So it's the, aside of the mission of a combat controller, which I love dearly, the best thing about being a combat controller is you're not locked into one thing. So in the early days of Afghanistan and the early days of Iraq, every other night I was on a mission with a different group of people. So I would go from working with the SEALs, I'd come off, they'd go into a rest cycle and I'd immediately go into something with the Rangers and they'd come off and they'd go into a rest cycle and I'd go into something with the special forces guys. Uh, there was even one deployment where people were in a rest cycle and I went out and I spent 10 days with the British SAS. 
as a combat controller, you're, you're just versatile. You have these great experiences because everybody needs the skill set you've got, and no other country and no other service organically builds it. You know, there's 400 combat controllers in the Air Force today. That's that's in in the entire country, not just in the Air Force. There are a couple countries, Australia, and I think some Eastern European countries who've just started up combat control units in the past decade. And they did that because they saw the value of it. They saw the need uh, and they didn't quite frankly want to rely on us giving them people. They said, we want to go create this. So they've stood those, those organizations up. So I, throughout my entire career, especially post nine 11, I was working with lots of different units and, and it would change almost every night. It was, it was a wonderful thing for me. Hmm. Cal. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I worked with the Rangers a lot. Uh, I did a lot of interfere seizures with them. When we were over there, same guys I work with every day are right there. Great guys. They do a great job. We integrate in with them great. I mean, PJs, controllers, weather guys, it didn't matter. Uh, you, you get on the deck, and because every guy, whether he's a PJ, controller, weather guy, if I needed someone to go do something that was outside of his job description, he'd already done it three, four times on a training mission prior to that. So, I didn't have to grab a combat controller to go do a specific combat control task. I grab a weather guy and say, Hey, I need you to go take care of this. And everybody knew everybody and everybody knew everybody's job. And it really complemented the entire mission and uh, loved working with the Rangers. I got a chance to work with the army. And like Mike says, you're, you're going to go to one unit and you're going to work with them and you're going to come back and you're going to refit your kit. You're going to jump around another mission and it could be with anybody. And it's seamless with us. We don't care. We'll just jump on, go do the mission and, and come back and mm-hmm refit for the next one there's got to be a a personality strength there too right i mean you're having to blend in with all these different teams that already i guess a lot of them already work together so what is that like do you work do you train that train on that at all in the pipeline yes i i actually briefed some some, uh visiting congressmen on this back in 2009 so we had some congressmen come visit our our unit and I talked about the very thing you just mentioned, right? While our guys do a lot of training together, uh, they also, we spend, we invest a lot of time training them to be able to work as a single combat controller with another special operations team. It doesn't have to be special operations. We, we can go work with a conventional force as well, if, if required. As a matter of fact, I was attached to third armored division for 60 days uh, in the Gulf war. So we spend a lot of time, teaching our guys how to work in what's called the joint or the coalition environment. So joint is different services working together. Coalition is different countries working together, but it's, it's one of the hardest things for us to prepare people for. So if you're a seal, you go through buds, you go through the pipeline, you get to your platoon and you you're, you're part of a 12 or 15 man platoon, right? You work together all the time. You train together, you go to war together. As a combat controller, the hardest thing is you graduate the pipeline. So you're a combat controller. If you came in at 18 years old, you graduate the pipeline at 20 years old. You get to your unit. And post 9-11, this is exactly what happened. You get to your unit. You spend six months getting upgrade training to make sure that you're ready to go to war. And at that six-month point, you're going over to Iraq or Afghanistan. And you're going to be attached to a special operations team of some sort. SEAL team, SF team, Ranger team. British SAS, Australian SAS, Canadian stuff, whatever it may be. And the day you get there, the day you get there to meet them and you're handing over with the guy leaving, the second that guy gets on the plane that you handed over with and is gone, 
you're now subject to being on a mission. So you could be on a mission with 13 dudes you've never met within 12 hours of being on the ground. And while you're in that firefight, you're the lowest ranking guy on the team. You're probably an E4, so a senior airman, and you're getting yelled at by somebody whose team is getting shot at. And he's going, give me resources now, kill them fucking people, blow that building up. That's how that's going for a 20-year-old kid. Right now he's a man, right? We all well know by age, he's actually a man, but he's 20 years old. He just finished a two-year pipeline. He did a six-month workup to deploy overseas. He just met these guys, and now he's in a firefight. And that's not uncommon. Guys didn't get on the ground and have two weeks before their first mission. They get on the ground and had four hours before their first mission. So how do we train guys set? Throughout the entire pipeline, we talk to them about their responsibility of being a special operations warrior and um, how they have to be able to measure up to the standards of everybody they work with. And when they go in there, they are responsible for their skill set, whether it's pararescue or combat controller or combat weather guy. Um, you're responsible for being the expert on the ground and being able to advise the leaders on the ground with you what's going on. You don't have the ability to debate things on the ground. You have to be decisive. You have to know what your job is. And quite frankly, at the, very, at the end of the day, you have to be able to shoot, move, and communicate with anybody. Kyle? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a it it is some attitude. You go in there knowing you're you're the best at what you do. You know your skill set. You know what you're doing. You've been trained. You've been equipped. And you go in there knowing with the mental attitude that hey, I'm the one that's going to make this happen. And uh, when you make decisions, you make the you just make a decision. Go with it. So it's not always something where like Mike saying you can debate with somebody. You know, you, the ground force commander tells you his intent, and you initiate something, get a plan together, and then you go make it happen. And uh, 99% of the time, our guys just make it happen and they do it right. So, and, and let's be clear there is no other force that does what we do. No one. There's special forces, rangers, SEALs, Marine Recon. They don't graduate their pipeline six minutes later, send an individual out with another service with dudes that they've never met before to go fight a war. Nowhere else does that happen. Um, and the fact that we do it, we train to it, and we're very skilled at it um, is impressive. To me, it's one of the biggest badges of honor we should wear. Um, and it was also for me throughout my entire career, one of the most awesome things about the job. I never felt bored. I always felt like I was fighting to keep up um, because I was always with somebody different doing a variety of things to serve this country's natural, national interests. Yeah, that's great info, and I think it's very good for some people who will be listening that are considering combat control. Let's jump ahead now to the withdrawal in Afghanistan from you know roughly August of 2021. What was uh, combat control's role in that withdrawal, and, and what else do you want to say about the, the withdrawal, Kyle? That's a uh, great question. Um, I mean, it was time to withdraw. decision was made. The plan was or lack of a plan was put into place and uh, they put combat controls on the ground to make it happen. So again, combat controllers are just put on the ground and told to make it happen. Whether they have a plan, someone gave them a good plan or not, they'll come up with a plan, they'll make it happen the best they can. So uh, I didn't agree with everything that was going on, understood why, when it happened, I got a few phone calls and I actually initiated my resources to try and get people out of there uh, because their fellow soldiers or brothers or sisters, they're, they're guys that we've, we've gone to war with. So you try and help get them out. And I, I got phone calls from people we knew that were stuck there. So I you mean, initiate... uh, locals or Americans, 
locals. Yeah. So we did initiate some of our assets to get over there, try and help get people out. We didn't get enough of them out. Uh, I felt at this point that I couldn't get it more out, but we did get a few folks out and uh, just took a bad situation and make the best of it. Did we already have combat controllers on the ground that were utilized or we brought in more? I'll let, I'll let Mike answer that because he probably has a better t- take on that. Yes, there's a couple things that happened. The actual military withdrawal happened in July out of Bagram. They shut Bagram down. And, and the way I understand it, they got a phone call saying, you need to pack up, you need to be gone in the next 24 hours. And they did that, not just combat control, but everybody that was there. So it was a very rapid thing. Although everybody knew the withdrawal was coming, when it came down to execute, it was the order was not expected in the way it was received. It was very interesting because after it happened, um, I received a, a communication from a buddy of mine. He said, hey, man, we withdrew Bagram last night. A ranger who was with you on October 19th was with us. And he just said to you know, relay that this team did as good a job withdrawing as, they did, as we all did when we went in October 19th together. And that was a really interesting thing because, uh, quite frankly, I didn't know that guy would remember me, but uh, he did, and, and they passed that information on. Fast forward to what you're talking about, which was August, which was the evacuation. I believe what happened, I don't know this for sure because I've not asked the question, but I believe what happened is they had to relaunch people back into the country. I think most of them were gone. We may have had one or two guys there, but they had to relaunch a team back into the country because everything around them was collapsing, and there's nobody who can run that airfield, nobody who can go in and establish control of an airfield and run it as quickly and with as much agility as a combat controller can. There are mobility air traffic control units, both in the, in the Marine Corps and the Air Force, uh, maybe even in the Army. But those folks need a long time to plan, and they take up a lot of space. From what I understand, the guys who went back into Afghanistan for the evacuation had nothing but their rucksacks. They didn't have big pieces of equipment that could help them run that airfield. So what they did do is they got off the airplane, they went to the center where the, the, the ground force commander was. And they said, okay, what's going on? And he just started throwing problems at them. And they just started knocking them out, solving them right there, uh, getting helicopters moved out of movement areas, clearing off space to land airplanes, making sure the runway is free of obstacles, uh, trying to work on uh, with the, the ground forces on crowd control, what that means when you're landing airplanes and taking airplanes off. And that they were really in chaos the first 24 to 48 hours just trying to bring calm to chaos, if you will. Um, and over the next period of, of time that they were there, they were really just making things happen. As a matter of fact, the ground force commander, when, when they finally brought a general in, he said, hey, where are my combat controllers? I need to talk to them. And he grabbed a hold of the, the ranking enlisted guy and said, okay, you're, you're with me for the rest of the time. And he was part of their planning cycle. So they would have their daily briefs. They would talk about what's going on. He'd look at the combat controller on the ground and say, what do you think? He'd say, yes, sir, I think we can make that work. Then they'd have some uh, detailed planning sessions. They'd go out and execute every single day. Uh, but what's, what's interesting about it all is, you know, you go back to October 19th, when we start the invasion of Afghanistan, you've got combat controllers, first boots on ground, taking over an airfield. You have combat controllers out with all the other forces, helping take the fight to the enemy. And all those combat controllers are talking. They're talking to each other to make sure they're deconflicting what's going on. We had combat control presence. We had a squadron in country in Afghanistan for 20 years doing all those same things, running airfields, 
and work with special operations teams. And then when you have to hastily evacuate the embassy and an airfield, and even our partners, right? We've got interpreters who've been supporting us for 20 years. And unfortunately, our government is postured to let them be left alone, which is criminal in my opinion. We got combat controllers in there writing all those wrongs, getting people out of the embassy, making sure planes are landing safely, make sure they're taken off safely, make sure coordinate with the ground forces to, to uh, get the right people out of the country at the time. Um, and it's, it was a you know senior NCO enlisted combat controller doing that. You can go back to Vietnam and see the same thing. The first you know people running the air war in Vietnam uh, in Laos and Cambodia were combat controllers, just documented, right? And we had guys in, in Vietnam doing all kinds of stuff for, for the years of uh, duration of that war. And in the evacuation of Vietnam, you know, the combat controllers that were involved in that all got silver stars for their participation in getting people out of that country. So this isn't something new. This is what combat controllers do. When we say we're first in, last out, it's who we are. We're there when things kick off. We help bring calm to chaos. We're, we're there helping wrap things up, even when uh, our government doesn't do a good job of wrapping things up. What about the, yeah, I don't remember the names now, but the general who had a photo op basically and or video op and said he was the last one on the ground. Is that accurate? Well, I mean, he uh, officially he'll be the last one on the ground. But what happens is a combat controller is not going to clear airplanes to take off from inside the aircraft. So he's going to make sure everybody gets on the aircraft. He's going to go out. He's going to do his final checks. He's going to get the aircraft clearance. And then he's going to hop on the back of that airplane. So my suspect is that's what happened. It's, I know if I was on the ground, that's what I would be doing. Yeah. What about one of the more highly publicized events was, you know, one of the planes, I don't know if it was the C-130, you have to tell me, but C-17, the C-17 that had all the Afghanis holding on to it. How did the, the pilot and the combat controller and whoever else worked that situation? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, this is conjecture. I, I've not talked to anybody about that specific thing, but knowing what I know about how those things go, the combat controllers on the ground were, were talking to that airplane. The pilot was the one who made the final decision. The combat controller was feeding him information, was probably giving him his recommendations. But at that point, taking off with people around you um, and people trying to board your aircraft while it's moving, that would have been a pilot decision, merely because after you take off, there are other implications if somebody's crawled up in your wheel well or, or those types of things. So I'm sure it was a chaotic discussion. I'm sure the combat controller gave them advice and gave them situational awareness of things that the pilot couldn't see um, between the two of them. They discussed what the options were, but the pilot ultimately went, hey, I want to take off. And then the combat controller said, okay, here's how we do that and gave him his final guidance. Wow. Worked out. Is, is there anything you want to add to that, Kyle? No, that's a, that's a, obviously we weren't there, but from our experience in, in the past 20, 30 years, that would be exactly how you'd want to do it. Well, what about before we move move to uh, the CCA, is there anything else that you'd like to say about combat control deployments or the, the withdrawal or anything that we've already been discussing? Yeah, this is Kyle. I, I, uh, I don't have anything else to say. I think uh, Mike's covered it well. And uh, my hat's off to the guys still out there fighting the fight. Thank you. Yeah, I'll offer that, you know, it, it was – an incredible journey for me to spend 24 years as a combat controller. Uh, while you're in it, 
you live this quiet professional life. You don't boast about it. You just, you know, you let your actions speak louder than your words and, and you go about your business because you're surrounded by people in all the branches of service um, who are absolute heroes and, and experts in, in what they do. Uh, so it's pretty humbling. But, you know, after I retired and I got to reflect on it, you know, one of my buddies, Dan Schilling, you know, who wrote, wrote the book, uh, Alone at Dawn, he will say, you know, combat controllers are the deadliest force to ever walk the planet. And, and I agree with him. One of our guys was with a three-man team. It was him, a special forces guy and a CIA guy in the early days of war. And their job was to hunt down Osama bin Laden. He literally killed five to 600 people. Taliban that were chasing him and, and his two-man team who were tasked for tracking Osama bin Laden down. There are lots of combat controllers who will boast very similar things. They won't boast it, but their, their careers could boast it, if you will. I don't care how many sniper shots you make or how many rooms you clear, you're not destroying that many people. You're not influencing the battlefield that much, as much as a combat controller can. So for me, it was, it's, I reflect on my career. More importantly, I reflect on my community. Um, and I couldn't be more proud of, of what these guys do. Their technical acumen is extremely high. Um, their humility is right where it's supposed to be. But they carry that, that mantle of being the deadliest force on the planet the right way. They don't want to go out and, and kill people when they have to. They will take care of business the way they're supposed to. That's on top of humanitarian work or evacuations or running airfields. Just incredible humans. Well, Dan has been on my show twice, and he has proclaimed that also at the Daily is Four. So I, I, I love that. Combat Control Association. Mike, we, I'm sorry, uh, Kyle, I guess first. What about what's your role in the CCA and, and what is the CCA? What all do y'all want to say about it? I'm, a, I'm, I'm one of the board members on the CCA and all, also a board member on the CCF. And uh, the CCA is an internal, internal organization. We're here to help each other talk to combat controllers, you know, maintain the history, just controllers helping combat controllers and their families. And that's what the association is there for. If somebody's got a problem, the association's there to try and help them, whether that problem's a medical issue or a professional issue or anything else. It's a brotherhood, and that brotherhood is put together with the association. Uh, the foundation, a little bit different. The foundation is an external type organization where we're here to tell everybody else out there about the combat controllers and what we do and trying to bring that to light. And there's a couple of reasons to do that. In order to help our brothers, sisters, and families, we have to have funding. So the foundation is more or less the funding arm that reaches out to the people outside of the community to try and help. Mike is the president of both those organizations, and uh, Mike is the man. Hey, thanks, Kyle. The association is exactly that. It is a members organization. And while I'm very proud of it and I'm, I'm on the board, I want to focus on the foundation. Both organizations have the same mission, to take care of combat controllers and their families. That's what we do. Uh, I, I say this all the time. Nobody will take care of us better than us. Uh, there are lots of needs out there that the Department of Defense or the VA just don't cover. And we do. So... Our job is to go raise money so that we can take care of our, our folks. I won't talk about specific instances because you start betraying people's personal tragedies or, or circumstances, if you will. But I will tell you that in the past two months, we've had two combat controllers who, for a variety of reasons, needed help. 
and it was legitimate help. It wasn't, hey, I borrowed too much money and I need, I need help here. It was, hey, I lost a leg because of a jump accident or, hey, I'm deployed and my family is moving and we ran into some unique circumstances. We just need some help. And once we found out about it, we jumped in and we, we took care of the, the financial aspect of that for them. We're also focused on helping our, our teammates transition from active duty military to the private sector so that they can have a, an easier life. We help them with uh, making sure that they are able to engage the Veterans Administration in the right way so they can get the, the appropriate rating for, for how much they beat up their body. We do scholarships for wives and children. Combat controllers are deployed all the time. Um, and when they get out of the military and uh, they start their new life, you know, it's a new job and, and they don't have extra spending cash around. So when their wives or their kids, or even they want to get some skills, we're here to help them do that. Uh, so we're here to take care of our folks. Um, the foundation is the way to do that. It's www.combatcontrol.team.team. If anybody's interested in donating, please go there. $1, $20, $1,000, $50,000. It's all the same to us. It helps our folks when in time, in times of need. So www.combatcontrol.team. And we, we've been really fortunate the past year to create a lot of friends out there who want to help us uh, and partner with us, take care of our folks. Um, and we welcome anybody who wants to jump on board with that. You have a unique approach, it seems to me, because uh, I appreciate you letting me join you for one of your fundraisers uh, back in November. And it was something I'd never seen before, uh, how you tell the people there about combat controllers. You've got combat controllers there that speak, talk about maybe real world, real world missions. And um, it seems to generate not only more interest, but therefore more donations because people were asking me, they were like, why don't, why does, why don't people know about you? He, they thought I was a combat controller, but because of the shirt I had on, but uh, that's a unique approach and it seems to be working pretty effectively. Yeah. It, it's interesting. So, you know, let's go back to 1988. I graduated combat control school in October of 1988. And I showed up to McCord Air Force Base. Airmen, I've got two stripes on my sleeve. Um, wear my blues because I was told when you show up to your new unit, you got to be in your blues. I don't know any better. And I, I'm walking around base trying to find where my unit is. You know, again, we had no internet. So you, you just showed up and you tried to figure it out. And this guy pulls over and says, hey, do you need a ride somewhere? I said, well, I'm going to the 1722nd Combat Control Squadron. And uh, he said, well, I could take you over there. And as I get in, he goes, what's your red beret? And I start talking about it. He's like, I'd never heard of you guys. This is a guy who's stationed on the same base as combat controllers. And he has no idea who we are. In the Air Force, there's 400 combat controllers. There's 330,000 people in the Air Force. So it's really a small community. That's just inside the Air Force. When you look at this country of 330 million people, the SEALs are great at promoting themselves. Special Forces do a pretty good job as well. Rangers have been around forever. Marsoc is just coming into their own, but they're pretty big. We've got to go tell our story. For a small force, we have a big impact. Uh, we've had a lot of people sacrifice as much as anybody else, and we just need to take care of them. So the way we do that is we tell our story. Most people are intrigued to say, wow, this is something new that I've never heard of. But here's the interesting thing. Combat control has been around since 1953. SEALs and Special Forces have not, right? We've just been around longer, but we're not as well-known. We're not as big, nor do we need to be. But what we do need to do is take care of our people as well as they do. 
So that's what that's the mission of the Combat Control Foundation and the association, and we're going to do just that. The foundation we've just uh, now really got it going active, and uh, if there's any people out there that have already donated, I just want to say thank you. You've helped us out a lot. You've got us going, and uh, we're going to keep going. So if you're out there and you're you've got some interest, or you're just curious about what, what we do, please get a hold of us. We'd love to talk to you. I'll personally take your call and. Uh, you know, I'll tell you all about what combat control is doing and what my brothers have done out there in the past and, you know, let you know how you can help. Mike, anything in closing? No, Thad, thank you for having us on here. I echo uh, Kyle's comments. Thanks everybody who's supported us in the past uh, 18 months here, standing at the foundation, but uh, thank you for having us. It's been a wonderful time. Yeah. Well, the ball is rolling and it's gaining momentum, it seems. So as far as the, the, the CCA and CCF, so appreciate y'all and your service to our country for so many years and now for continuing to serve the combat controllers and their families. So appreciate you. It looks like it's a labor of love. I know you're spending a lot of time with what you're doing now in addition to your, your other jobs. So God bless y'all. Thank you.